before we dive into this episode, if you want to build a killer plan that will deliver business success in 2022 and solid growth over the next three years, then check out the Growth Strategy Program on fionafitzconsulting.com, then click Online Courses. The next cohort starts September 14th and places are filling up fast. There's an early bird discount available, so don't delay in registering your interest today. Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. Here on Brand Growth Heroes, we're lucky enough to be able to do some fairly regular episodes with our favourite insurgent brands, so we can follow their progress and learn from them in real time. One such brand is Strong Roots, who we've spoken to twice now since we began this podcast journey. Strong Roots has strong plans to hit 100 million in sales over the next few years. And in this third episode together, the founder Sam Dennigan and I discuss how they're going to do this. So if you want to hear what big ticket innovation really means, how Sam and his team are approaching international expansion in both the USA and Europe, how their foray into dark kitchens in New York City is going, and why they've brought their creative agency in-house and how that works, then don't miss this. Sam Denikin, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Fiona, it's great to be back. Great to see you. It's really good to see you too. How is summer in the big smoke in New York City? It's open again. The city is returning back to life. Um, You can go for a meal. It's hot, maybe a little bit too humid. But uh, yeah, no complaints. Life is resuming. I'm super hopeful. Oh, that's good. That's good. So look, give us an overview of the whole business. Where are you guys at now coming out of the COVID lockdowns in most of your markets? And uh, yeah, just give us an overview and then we'll dig into some of the subjects that come up. We've had a mad, uh, whatever amount of time it's been since we spoke the last time. It's been crazy busy. Nearly a year. Is it nearly a year? It is. It is. So we spoke mid deep COVID the last time and... um, We've emerged from it and there's some sort of normality resuming, certainly in in the retail business. Um, But all territories for us have been uh, super interesting. You know, we've done more retail launches in the US, which I can tell you about. And we've been globalizing the footprint uh, as a brand in general, going into new regions. Um, We've done some significant process changes internally. in terms of the creative agency that we've kind of developed within within our own house and launched some exciting new products. So that is loads, loads of things to talk about. Lots of stuff, lots of stuff. So start with the global expansion then. Where have you just gone into? So as you know, you know, for the longest amount of time, the objective of the brand has been to, to create a global brand. And um, a couple of years ago, we kind of put a marker on that. So we decided that we wanted to be available for 10% of the global population uh, before the end of of 2023. Available for not in their houses, two very different things, uh, obviously, in terms of household penetration. So we, we decided, you know, what are the lowest hanging fruit on that? Who speaks English? Who eats the same diet as we already produce? And where are the biggest buckets of people? 
And, you know, if you remember when we were working together, the biggest bucket of people that made sense at the time was North America. And we've gone there and it's been successful and we're still rolling out um, into various different parts of the, the States. But the most recent ones have been um, the Netherlands. Um, we launched with Albert Hein uh, two weeks ago uh, through a great distribution partner there called Van Toll. So we're operating locally in, in the Netherlands now across their whole estate of stores with three of our SKUs, which we're super delighted about because we've been working on a Central European partner for quite some time and had to do stuff like localize the packaging. And I know you will know about localizing the packaging, but for anyone who doesn't know about localizing the packaging, it's a massive pain in the arse. It is such a head wreck. Did you do a multilingual pack? We did a multilingual pack. Uh, English is the mainstay language on the front, but all of the legal parts, like the ingredients and the nutrition and all that kind of stuff in French and Dutch and German. And I think that's it. Um, so we've launched and um, so far so good. It's pretty early to, to say that success rates, et cetera, but it's been really good. And um in the next couple of weeks, um, we're going to be hitting the shelves of um, Woolworths in Australia. Um, I think we've got three or four SKUs. I'm not quite sure which one, so don't ask me. And um, thousands of stores of distribution. That's amazing. Across the whole territory. So all of the, certainly all of the Irish expats and the UK expats and everyone who's been asking for Strong Roots down there pretty much since we launched um has uh, has now come to light and um yeah we, we've worked really hard on that one we even during COVID at one stage we we're thinking of flying product in to get it started we decided that our carbon footprint would be too much so we we've got there and it's just about to land and we're really excited about that one so do you just I know that companies listening to this are going to be thinking okay who's managing that is there an export manager not to go into it too much detail but do you have somebody who's competent who like obviously they're competent but did you have someone with experience who knows how to do that kind of stuff Yeah um we have this great lady called Julie uh Julie has been working in international commercial sales for her whole career so Ornua water wipes be free um lots of the big companies managing US territories, Scandinavian territories, et cetera. And she joined us, I think, just over two years ago um, before I moved to to the US. Um, and that has been her baby for the last couple of years. So great stuff, you know, and, and that's an illustration in itself. It's taken, you know, nearly a couple of years for these big things to come to fruition. Um, but when they come, they come big. So um, it's been it's been really good. That's super. Well done. So, okay. So new global rollout and more countries coming, I imagine. Yes. We're targeting Canada. We're targeting other Central European countries like Germany, France. I'll be on to you to speak about France in detail when we get there. But um, back to what we said before, where are the biggest buckets of people? Who's already eating this type of consumption and where's the, the least hassle? So, you know, we've even been speaking to groups of distribution in South Africa. Um, we've had a couple of conversations about the Brazilian market, which is thriving for plant-based foods at the moment and um, and also has big population, you know, that can do volume. So, um, yeah, we're being very strategic about it. So the time needs to be right for a company to make all these steps into reaching out globally and going into new markets. You guys 
are established, you've got a really strong senior team in place in your home markets. You know your strategy, you've worked on it for years and honed it and honed it and honed it. And you took on just the, I mean, the UK first, then the USA and you're getting those right before you made the leap, right? Because I just think that's a really important thing as well because when you're a young startup or you're scaling challenger brand you're going to get phone calls you're going to get people saying and it can be a distraction unless you have the infrastructure in place in terms of people to manage all of this because it takes up a lot of management time and headspace doesn't it huge i mean we have a sufficient supply chain department of sufficient finance department to be able to do this but the reality is is that you've got to you know, cut your cloth to fit in terms of opportunities. There will be all of the opportunities, but they don't really go away if if you're on trend. So I remember visiting a conference in the Emirates at one stage called Gulf Food. And I sat down, uh, I was lucky enough to sit down with one of the Ornua commercial directors for a bit of mentorship for about a half an hour. And the first thing he said to me is, why are you here? You know, you've got so much road in Ireland. You've got so much road in the UK. And he was absolutely right. You know, we, we had to capitalize on the markets that we were in first and find, you know, the ceiling or the or the perceived ceiling before we started looking outward. And that's exactly the case here. You know, we learned from that advice and took our time, made sure there were the right steps and, and had the resources to do it as well. So let's talk about those home markets, so to speak, because I think not only Ireland's, not only your home market, the UK is really as well, because you've such an established team there. Talk to us about those two markets and how they're doing. And I know that you've had a really exciting launch in the UK recently. Uh, talk to us a little about that. Yeah, so our home markets are Ireland, UK and, and USA, but the UK is by far our, our biggest one. Um, it's growing substantially and has you know, so much addressable market that we haven't reached yet. Like our household penetration is now sitting at 7%, which we're really proud of after, you know, three years of trying. But the goal is 15 in a very short space of time, which means that we have to talk louder and reach more people. And in the effort to try and reach more people, we've had to design products that are relevant to the interests of those consumers. And as you know, you know, we position ourselves as a gateway plant-based brand for people to migrate plant-based consumption and flexitarianism and reducitarianism. And, you know, in that, we wanted to try and pick something that wasn't being done or wasn't being done well. So one of the biggest buckets of consumption in the frozen food aisle in the UK is fish fingers. It is a classic branded and private label bucket of consumers and products, which is absolutely ginormous, a huge amounts of consumption, huge amounts of, of retail value. And the move away from animal-based protein products and burgers and sausages and stuff has been much quicker than the migration to um, alternative fish products. So over the last two years, we developed a product called the Veg Finger. Very simple very basic product, tastes absolutely delicious, doesn't taste like fish, which a lot of the other brands have rushed towards because what our consumer feedback was telling us was actually that's not important. What you love about this, Fiona, is the whole texture, mouthfeel piece is the most important. Surprise, surprise. The crisp crumb, it being not gluten-free and then being incredibly veg forward instead of you know having to be a direct fish replacement. So we've we've bundled together a few root vegetables, celeriac, cauliflower, potato, and a couple of herbs and spices. 
and that's it. You know, super healthy, uh, green GDA guides all over the place, nutritionally uh, sound, low in fat, low in salt, all the things that you want. And um, we're even working in the background to see if we can, as a second stage, do some fortification, which is very topical in the market at the moment for things like omega-3 and protein, et cetera. But the first thing we wanted to do is make sure it tasted great because a lot of the products out there in fish replacement, they're doing goujons, they're doing fingers, they're doing, you know, scampy kind of things. Um, they all taste terrible. So we made it taste the best and now we can formulate it to be a functional food after the fact. The reality is, is that the cost is is quite prohibitive when you're trying to add in all the good stuff. So we wanted to start somewhere and then build on that like we've done with a lot of the other products. So I think what aligned perfectly for us was we were trying to, you know, tackle one of the biggest buckets of consumption in frozen food in the UK, make it healthy, make it tasty. And then at the same time, you've had a documentary like Seaspiracy come into the market from a Netflix originals. And it has just focused everyone's attention on the subject, uh, timely and absolutely necessarily, um, which is ultimately that our fish stocks are being absolutely plundered, being used, being wasted. Being battered. Being battered, literally, yeah. And essentially we're running out of time, much like a lot of the other environmental subjects that we've talked about before. So our innovation pipeline has perfectly married up with illustration of, of sustainability and, and, and therefore us having to do less education than we we're expecting to have to do uh, for the cause. So where have you launched that? We've launched in Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, uh, in Ireland, Tesco Super Value done stores and uh, Whole Foods in the UK and lots of other uh, smaller independent retailers as well. So that's quite an interesting distribution approach. You basically going in what I would call the top end with that particular innovation and seeding it first before going into all of the other retailers that you are actually available in. Yeah, I think um, most of that is more to do with listing timelines than it is to do with uh, product acceptance. Um, We've got great retailer relationships with all of the other ones that I didn't mention. But, um, you know, you've got that window of twice a year to get on the shelf and we're confident that it will happen. It's just uh, the the timing. Okay, well, that's brilliant. That's a fabulous. I'm looking forward to trying that. We over here on the Isle of Man, we are able to get your products in Marks and Spencers as well as Tesco. And we are currently enjoying all of your little... Little roots. Roots. Awesome. And your cauliflower hash browns are a firm favourite in our family for even the little ones and the big ones. We all love them. But I do love the fact that the little roots are in... Marks and Spencers. I don't know why. It just it always feels like a brand has really made it if Marks and Spencers is willing to put them on their shelf. You know, that one is a particular point of pride for certainly the UK team and definitely for me. Uh, Strong Roots was the first branded frozen product to go into um, the freezer aisle in their new strategy after ice cream. Um, we kind of hold that up there with first frozen brand and Harrods, Marks and Spencers. You know, really kind of illustrates what we're about, which is, you know, premiumization as well as quality at the same time, because those two brands in isolation tell that story. So to be pitched up there is is pretty great. 
Now, speaking of um, premiumization, your packs, your new packaging looks amazing. So you've changed your packaging. It's not a revolutionary change, but it certainly looks really smart and a little bit more modern, a little bit posher, um, cooler. Can I say? Can I say all of those things? Am I allowed? I hope so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I'm calling it a brand refresh because... uh, Because you're becoming a big corporate. Well... (laughs) Yeah, well, I suppose. No, we're definitely not. I know you're not. I'm only teasing you. <laughs> we're going to be a challenger brand forever. Thank you very much. You'd be taking the total mick out of me. If I'd said that to you a couple of years ago when I was down I in know, your office and we're working, you would have totally taken the mick out of me. Go, oh, brand refresh fee. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think the reason I'm leaning on that is because a rebrand for me is like a total strategic change. It is. The business. Yeah. And it was an important lexicon internally because doing the work in the middle of COVID, in the middle of all the other strategic projects that were going on, and then deciding, it was called Project Vessel, by the way, and then deciding to throw Project Vessel in the mix to be like, look, you've got to achieve all of these other things, and we're also going to change the brand as well, by the way. It was a panic point for a lot of the departments, as you can imagine, you know, product in particular, were kind of uh, you know, myself and, and Suzanne Fraser, our, our product commercialization manager, is brought that together with uh, myself and the creative team and we got it done and we got it done unbelievably efficiently. But yeah, we, we decided, I think when we worked together, Fiona, we sat down and we were, we were wondering why the brand didn't have more recall. And we investigated this over like a three or four year period. And we had the answer, you know, three or four years ago, which was that the logo was quite busy. It was quite distinctive, but it was quite busy. So people knew what it looked like, but didn't know what the name was. Um, and our biggest asset has always been our packaging. You know, it's our best billboard and it stands out. But if you ask people who makes the sweet potato fries or who makes the cauliflower hash browns, they wouldn't know what to say. Um, so we decided to clean it up, um, made it simpler, more accessible, um, less busy. And in the changing of the logo, we also identified that specifically for the US market, we didn't stand out as much as some of the other brands in the category. So we took the opportunity to do some consumer research on what would stand out against all the other packs in the shelf, really strategically honing in on on what color schemes would contrast off other competitors and stuff like that. And then in conjunction with that, the UK needed help with merchandising. Um, in parallel with that, we were trying to figure out how we reduce our plastic packaging. So Project Vessel became sustainability plus brand plus packaging output master project altogether. And and then just for good measure, we decided to bring a lot of the creative in-house Let's talk about that now, because this is a big thing that's being discussed in all of the the bigger companies. And some of them have already done it. Some of them are on their way to do it. And challenger brands are thinking about whether it should be something they should emulate. You guys have brought your creative team in-house. When you talk about creative team, what does that mean? And why have you done it? Why we've done it is because I've always believed that businesses should be design-led. That's what tells the story. That's what people resonate with. And if you've got a brand and you don't have good design across your business in every department that creative people can feed into, you're not going to survive. It's change or die in CPG and FMCG industry. And, and that's the why. 
Um, what we've done is I come from a creative background and what I've been trying to do is, is form a, a creative group of people internally that can actually sit in all departmental meetings. So we're not just keeping a creative agency in silo in the corner of a, of a studio in, in the HQ. We're placing them into supply chain meetings. We're placing them into marketing sales meetings and they can go to retailer presentations and actually assist on, on what's happening in the business. Currently, we have a creative lead. We have a, a social content and community manager and producer. We have a digital designer and um, we're in the middle of actually growing that team. Um, I'm giving up the reins of my creative direction hat to a group creative director, uh, which we're actually in recruitment for at the moment and um, trying to flesh out with some more designers, both graphic and digital at the same time. So we've built a mini boutique agency, but that services the business rather than multiple clients. So it's about what does the business need and what, how do departments benefit from having creative people who are not from the food industry um, look and scrutinize how we can do things better. So it's not just a, you know, a painting pictures exercise. It's a, how do we do sessions better? How do we do, you know, experiential activities? How does the workspace feel and look and operate? You know, it, it, we're putting it into everything. Okay. And so I'm imagining that is all incredibly expensive, but it evens out against what you would have been spending on agencies anyway. A fraction of the cost. No way. A fraction of the cost? A fraction of the cost. That's unbelievable. So it's better value for you guys to have these people in-house. And does that mean that you'll be your own above the line advertising? You've made a decision recently to only communicate in a particular way, haven't you? Let's talk about that. Yeah, I think we have external agencies for the um, for specific projects and for things where we don't have the skill set for. So we have a photographer in-house now, but we also use a studio photographer for taking things that are above our skill set. We haven't eradicated the agency model, just to be absolutely clear. Right. We have PR agencies. We have a design agency that helps with um, packaging specifically because it's a very, very niche uh, design uh, thing. Concept design, ideation, and content production are being done in-house. For the most part, all other elements of that are being done outside. We've brought a media specialist in-house to buy digital media space, in particular across the triopoly of platforms. So we are starting to broaden the skill sets. We have category managers and researchers, et cetera, that would all be in a normal agency function. But I think it's easier to think of us as a sales and marketing food company, um, which is closer to an agency than it is to a food production company. And when you look at us like that, it makes a lot more sense. But um, we haven't eradicated agencies. We're just using a lot more internal briefing output to get there quicker and therefore saving a lot of costs in the process. That's fabulous. That's brilliant. Okay, so a blended model, really. If you've enjoyed this podcast so far, then please do share it on social media and take a minute or two to write a review on iTunes. It would make a big difference in allowing us to interview even more super guests with great advice that can transform how you do business. 
talk to us about the States then. So a year ago when we spoke, you had been there a year going really well and you were about to launch into the next lot of stores. I think it was Walmart and you were going to be in 3000 stores nationally. Where are you today and how has your approach to the States evolved? What have you learned? What can you share with us? Yeah, it's changed very quickly over a very, very short amount of time. Like a year is like a century in CPG world. We were just about to go for, I think Walmart was beginning maybe a couple of months after we were we were discussing and we're distributed in about 2000 Walmart stores now. Um, and the rest of the makeup of the US equates to about 4,000 live currently. We're just about to onboard Kroger uh, which is new news for us um, in another thousand stores. So, um, congratulations. Yeah, no, it's huge news because Kroger is servicing a lot of the areas of distribution nationally where um, some of the other retailers would be, you know, less less present, especially California. Uh, Kroger's, um, you know, existence in California is, is quite strong, specifically in some of the, the neighborhood store areas. You, you should think about Kroger like a, a symbol group as opposed to um, Kroger as the banner across all the stores. So it's like, in Ireland terms, it's like a, a BWG or a, a Musgraves. And in the UK terms, it's probably closer to a, a, a co-op or a, or a NISA, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, yeah, our, our distribution has continued, like pretty much, you know, there thereabouts doubled. And our concentration has been on growing you know, in a in a citadel model, uh, the Northeast as a case study and how we're going to grow in the rest of the US. Um, so we have national distribution with, you know, Walmart and Whole Foods, but our efforts, resources and concentration from a communication point of view all go into the Northeast in the corridor between Boston and Philadelphia, and which is sometimes referred to as the, the North Atlantic region. And why go national first? How did you make that decision to not just launch there, do your beta testing, you know, through the line with your communications and your marketing push and then bring the whole thing national? It's a great question. And this kind of has been a a constant conversation point internally and to, you know, investment for the last two years, which is we needed to prove that the brand had national potential at the same time as showing the potential velocities in natural. So we didn't want to be pigeonholed as a, you know, just a natural brand because the, I suppose the the scope and becoming a household name means that you have to be available everywhere. Um, so we wanted to prove simultaneously that while we could definitely exist in somewhere like Whole Foods, that we could also exist in somewhere like Walmart. And we're in the middle of that mission you know, certainly closer to the the proof for somewhere like Whole Foods and getting closer and closer to, um, you know, better success metrics in, in the bigger conventional retailers. Ballsy approach. Everyone disagrees with it, but the, the insight came from research. It wasn't an unbacked up punt. The insight, the insight came from, you know, Strong Roots is clear. Strong Roots is simple. You don't have to do education on the brand, you know, um, I remember uh, having a conversation with Verl Invest, who are the, the investors of Oatly, um, back when we were doing fundraising. And their model with Oatly has been famous in terms of its success. You know, starting with the baristas, getting the, 
the super fans on board, then going to a single region with a single retailer, not being able to produce enough to fulfill, you know, certain retailers, and then exploding nationally as a result of the momentum that was built up. And, you know, when I was explaining the strategy, I felt it'd be good for the brand. There was eyes rolling everywhere. So it's been a difficult thing to convince people of, but so far the acceptance levels are there. Um, I'm not saying that we've been successful and, you know, we're, we're counting our chickens and, and, and everything is easy. It's far from that. It's a daily slog and it's really difficult, but we are proving that it works in both markets and, that's the objective. So um, we've had a, a different approach, but with a really, really well-resourced sales team who understand the market so much um, that we were able to do it with, with the internal knowledge. Okay. So it's very measured. You know that this is the risk you're taking, so to speak, but you believe in what you're doing. You believe it's the right way. And often entrepreneurship and the famous entrepreneurs who get their brands to 100 million the quickest are the ones who are willing to take the punts that nobody else was, um, the measured punts. So that's brilliant. We're all going to learn from this. I hope so. Oh, I know what I wanted to talk to you about before um, we have to run off. Dark Kitchens. Tell us about Dark Kitchens and where you're at with that, because this is really exciting. On top of all the other things that you've told us about, which are all very exciting. At the start of COVID, I felt that it was not the time to sit back and relax and, you know, stick to the projects that we got. I I felt that it was a, a major cultural moment where people needed to, like, seek out innovation. And I... I live a couple of blocks from a dark kitchen. Uh, a dark kitchen is essentially a um, a commercial kitchen, which have been around for years, or a, almost a factory kitchen where different brands make their food um, and distribute it under different labels. And with the phenomenon of Uber Eats and DoorDash and Seamless and all these delivery platforms, and this has been a pro and a con for them, it doesn't matter where the products are being produced as long as they can be distributed locally within a, you know, kind of three mile radius. So a dark kitchen can make my products for me, could make brand X, Y, and Z's products for them. They all come from the same address, but they're distributed in different packaging with different branding. And if you go on any of these delivery platforms, you search by brand, And if you've got trust metrics like reviews and and everything else that show that you're worth trying um, then, and the the product quality is good and the health and safety quality is good, then essentially the idea is what does it matter where it's being produced? If it can be produced more efficiently to give you better value, that's the objective. So we decided to try this model out on the basis that we wanted to try and market our products when we couldn't do in-store sampling. So we were selling the product for trial as well as putting like Whole Foods vouchers and coupons and stuff in the packs and telling people the story about the brand. But also when they got their food, they were able to actually live taste it in their own kitchens. So we essentially opened up a restaurant during COVID in Jersey City, just across from Manhattan. And um, just over a couple of weeks ago, we've had a soft launch on a second location in the center of Manhattan in the West Village where we found an underutilized kitchen, which was able to service a much wider, much more addressable area of, of vegan and, and vegetarian consumers, specifically in the, in the center of New York. So we've made up our burgers, our bites, our hash browns, our 
sweet potato and mixed with veg fries. And you can buy them, you know, as a healthier version to other takeout food delivered to your door within 20 or 30 minutes. And it's the perfect serve, right? Which is really important. Yeah, we've got, uh, you know, we've had to do a lot of work on understanding portions and sustainable packaging and, you know, heat retention and all that kind of stuff. So we're still learning as we go. But the objective is kind of twofold. One is we want to show people how to use the brand. We want to prove the potential for QSR, a food service product, which we're interested in moving into in the near term. Um, But we're also interested in just connecting with the consumer directly. I think every food brand owner has this vision of, um, you know, a restaurant associated with the brand or a pop-up associated with the brand. And you can do this without all that cost um, and prove the concept. Can I just ask a question, just to clarify it for me. If I'm in New York, where do I find the menu? Are you like on one of those eat out menus that the like loads of different brand menus? All of them. Yeah. Okay. So if I go into delivery search, it'll come up under fast casual dining or street food or whatever. So the, the, if, if you go on, Deliveroo doesn't really operate in the city. Um, the, the platform that I tell people to go to and try is DoorDash. The restaurant is called Strong Roots Plant-Based Kitchen West Village. You order from the menu from our delicious images shot internally from our creative team. Okay, so you're like a takeaway. We sit alongside McDonald's and do a very different job. That's amazing. And is it going well for you? What are you getting out of it? Is it driving people in store? Is it driving feedback? Is it driving learnings, driving revenue? A little of everything at the moment, but it's too early, um, to be honest. You know, we're getting great brand sentiment. We're going to get a lot of press. We're going to get people tasting the products. We're going to get revenue generation this time, uh, which was different to the last time. So um, a little bit of everything, but it's a little bit too early to to throw some figures at you. Have them for the next time. But these are kind of your lead users in very key neighbourhoods in the States, aren't they? They're the people who are going to be influencers. They're people who are going to try things first. You know, my new hero is this guy. I keep texting you his book. Yeah, I bet you haven't listened to it yet, but it's Dr. James Richardson and his book is Riding the Ramp of of, uh, Premium CPG Brands. And Dr. James Richardson, if you're watching this, there's a mention for you, but everybody needs to read this book. But he talks about attribute benefit association, right? He says, don't worry when you go out into a new market if your value proposition isn't perfectly clear. What he means by that is don't worry if you don't know exactly why the people you're targeting are choosing to buy your brand, what the benefit they're getting out of your brand and product is. And I suppose with this, it's like a test market, isn't it? You know, when you're serving them the wedges and the burgers together or the sizes or, you know, it's like, what benefits are they, particularly that group, getting out of what you offer? And you're going to get that feedback. And it's like a little test market for even for NPD, for new product development, isn't it? Yeah, I was lucky enough to be at a, a small group session with a very senior Amazon executive a couple of weeks ago, um, just learning the the ways of innovation of Amazon. And one of their main principles is the allowance of wandering wandering to get it right basically figuring it out as you go not under too much pressure to win or fail or whatever and and being in a comfort zone where there are you know pressures to to get a result but not any result in particular so you know for us if this proves that we should you know try and get spinach bites in the, on the menu of mcdonald's nationwide or if it proves that, uh, you know, we need to reformulate an ingredient because of consumer sentiment, then great. You know, it's 
very, very inexpensive R&D directly with consumers uh, with first party data. Like you can't beat it. So for us, it's a, you know, a piece of R&D that we're lucky enough to be able to do with the resources that we have, you know, without a huge amount of effort because of the, the great partners that we're working with. Amazing. Right. I know it's coming up to time. One big thing that is coming up in the next, what are we now, June, the next six months, what's the big thing that you guys are working on that you're allowed to tell us about? We have two really big things in the pipeline. One of them I couldn't possibly tell you about because I'd be murdered. Okay. (laughs) The second one I can, which is uh, Strong Roots' move to D2C. Um, So we're going to launch, uh, within the next 12 months, we're going to launch a D2C platform in in, uh, the Northeast in the USA. We've been working on it for about nine months now. Um, we've been trying to figure out what our product proposition is, who's it for, what are the size of the cases, what are the recipes, what's the product mix, what's the margin need to be. And we, we've had a, a lot of um, consultants and people have done this before for big brands getting involved to help us realize Strong Roots direct-to-consumer. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, and it's super exciting. And we've got a you know a whole organization you know backup for uh, for moving this way and America first because it makes sense um, in terms of a product acceptance and frozen distribution and fulfillment and all those kind of things. Freezer size, home freezer size. Exactly, exactly. Um, but uh, you know the goal is to to make it available much wider if, if it's successful. So, so that's probably one of the the more exciting things on the list um, that I haven't been able to really speak about before. Okay, well, that is brilliant. We will check in with you in about six months' time and find out about that. And after I stop recording, I'll ask you about the other thing. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Sam, listen, thank you so much. As always, absolute pleasure. So good to see you and we will chat soon, okay? Great, thanks for having me. It's been awesome, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 